Welcome back to another Yak Podcast. We're continuing our series on things of this earth, and this week we move into the idea of culture versus creation, and how we mimic God in the way we create. Hope you enjoy. So there is beauty in a sunset. There is such beauty in a sunset. Depending on what beach you are on and what body of water you are standing beside, it can be made more beautiful by the scenery around you. And even more beautiful depending on what person is standing next to you. And even more beautiful when you both exclaim the wonder of such a sight in the same breath. We have discussed these past few weeks the gifts that God has given us, like a sunset, like a um, relate the relationships we have, um, the good food we have to eat, um, the relationships, a good cup of coffee, our work, and countless other treasures. But a nagging thought might have permeated in the back of your head. Most of the things that I've discussed in the past few weeks have been good things in creation. Can culture, examples, a baseball game, a good book, an online game, fast cars, do- fast cars dodging paintballs, and other man-made things be equally as good as the natural creation gifts that God has given us? Can an iPad scream to the glory of God, or is it simply a tool for sin? What's your first thing? Uh, Nagging question. While it seems good to love the gifts God gave us in relation to creation, can we love the gifts God has given us in relation to culture? Again, while it seems good to love the gifts God has given us in relation to creation, can we love the gifts God has given us in relation to culture? And here's the thing. It's number one, the creation versus culture problem. In a world where man is responsible for so many atrocities, from our perversion of nature to our perversion of people to our perversion of technology, we have found so many ways to mess things up. For every medical advancement, we seem to unleash a new disease on the world. For every invention to make life longer, we invent something to end it just as quickly. This idea of man being a rot on the planet finds itself in movies and in academia. Agent Smith in The Matrix makes this claim about mankind. It's an older movie that came out about 10 years ago called The Matrix. Agent Smith says this, It came to me when I tried to classify your species, and I realized that you're not actually mammals. Every mammal on this planet instinctively develops a natural equilibrium with its surrounding environment. But you, you humans do not. You move to an area and you multiply and multiply until every natural resource is consumed. And the only way you can survive is to spread to another area. There is another organism on this planet that follows the same pattern. Do you know what it is? A virus. Human beings are a disease, a cancer to this planet. You're, you are a plague. Now, this is just not centered in movies. James Lovelock, scientist, environmentalist, and futurist, who famously spearheaded the scientific study of global warming and formulated the now standard Gaia model that the view of the Earth as a living organism, says humanity is Earth's infection. And I think many of us believe that. 
To live in a city with all the technology in the world is viewed as less desirable than living in a cave in the woods, living off the land. Ever heard the phrase, the way God intended us to? This thought has permeated and saturated our culture. And I think many of us, um, it builds on the presupposition that culture and its, its advancements are the burden, disease, plague of our planet. And that we should just get back to the way things were. So clearly, if we are to live in light of heaven while dealing with the things of earth, means getting back to earth. Right? First, let's define some terms in the argument. What is creation? This is your next fill in the blank. Creation is God speaking things into existence. It is seen in the first six days of creation. And believe it or not, when you look in the mirror, you're seeing it. You, as a man or a woman, are part of that creation. Something God spoke into existence. He came up with the idea. You did not come up with the idea for woman, Sam. Okay? What is culture? And I love this. Culture is mankind mimicking God. Speaking, thinking, creating things into existence. Culture is mankind mimicking God, speaking, thinking, and creating things into existence. So how do these two things interact, and were they meant to? The answer can begin to be found in what is known as the cultural mandate found in Genesis 1.28. It says this, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The very verse implies, as Joe Rigney says, creation has unrealized potential, latent dimensions that lie beneath the surface. Again, creation has unrealized potential, biblically. Latent dimensions that lie beneath the surface. As prophet, priest, and king, or priest, king, and prophet, we are called to work out this cultural mandate. And this is your last fill in the blank. We are called to work towards the new Jerusalem. And this is a thought process. Are we called to work towards the new Jerusalem? Or are we called to go back to Eden? We're not called to go back to Eden. When we die and Jesus comes again, he comes with a city. A city with a culture. We will not become elves that live in trees. Okay? We come with a culture that will be infused and that will borrow from the culture that we've created here on earth. King Solomon says this in Proverbs 25.2. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. So God revealed them in creation and as you fulfill your role as king, you search these things out. And how beautifully does that speak to what we were called to do in life? Not just when you have a job in your adulthood, but now. As you create, imagine, work in your schools and your part-time job or your volunteer work. Culture is more than just the arts. 
It is the all-encompassing work. Joe Rigney says this statement, both the fry cook at McDonald's and the conductor at the Boston Symphony are engaged in culture, each in his own way. In both cases, they are developing and transforming the world as they find it. I hope that encourages you. As you work or volunteer or take a test or make a project, you are participating in culture making. You are fulfilling your God-given mandate. While man's sinful nature can lead one to bend creation to its will, when reflecting a creative God, it should give us... Uh, when reflecting a creative God, though, as we reflect someone who is creative, it should give us appetites. Not to consume the world or forget it, but to taste its goodness and hunger to make it great. That's what our desire for culture should do. Our desire should not be to consume it, but to make it great. If we are viewing culture correctly, we view it in the same vein as Joe Rigney. Culture takes the rooted loveliness of the world and makes it lovelier. Takes the goodness of the earth's giveness and makes it greater. And this ties nicely into the concept we brought up two weeks ago. The idea that we were made to be priest, king, and prophet. As we train to be priest, we follow root memorization for much of it. Think of the role of a priest in the Old Testament. Um, It is understanding the rules and following through. Steve Jeffrey argues this, training to be a priest was a matter of learning long lists of detailed rules. None of the details of the tabernacle furnishings or the priestly garments were left to chance. Every detail was specified. A priest didn't have much creative thinking to do. Priests provide an important role of relaying important information, namely God's law. But creativity isn't required. And we do this with children as they age. As I'm growing and, you know, molding Stephen and Piper. Right now it's just rote memorization. Stephen doesn't have a lot of creative processes. If you give him a crayon, you'll get modern art, but you won't get, like, a Rembrandt or a Picasso. Okay? Um, you will get something that's not creative. That's just, nah Okay? He's learning rote memorization. It's the same way um, when I used to teach history. So, okay, let's get these five facts. And then with these five facts, what can we do with it in the context of history? If you know this about Egyptian economics during the, you know, Bronze Age period, how did that affect why it fell? So it's rote memorization and then the creativity of thinking, well, what does that lead to? This is just basic understanding of a process. Okay? It's good learning. Okay? Then you become king. As we train to be king, we are given more freedom. While Israel's king is required to know God's law, like the priest, he is also expected to rule in wisdom, applying the word of God to new and unforeseen circumstances. As king, we make decisions between good, better, and best, or the lesser of two evils. Wisdom builds on the law proclaimed by the priest. So you want to rule wisely? Do you want to affect people in your spheres of influence? you got to know the law like the priest does. But that's when you can truly become king and really influence people with wisdom. It's the next almost built-in step for you. And then finally, 
prophet. Lastly, as Joe Rigney puts it, if priests are God's service and kings are God's sons, prophets are God's friends. He he consults them before acting. This is what Amos 3 7 says. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. If the fundamental priestly virtue is obedient service and the fundamental kingly virtue is wise rulership, then the fundamental prophetic virtue is transformative imagination. So for all you creative people, what a gift you've been given. For those of you that don't view your creative, but you're just a numbers person and you think, I'm just going to end up in a cubicle, not have an effect on many people, having a calendar that has a, you know, a new landscape every month. That's going to be my existence. No, you get to create and cultivate culture even in that space. You get to use your wisdom from the law and then speak things into the existence in the companies that you'll work at. In your school space... Especially during projects, you have the space to be imaginative. In your essays, which is the reason they give you essays in school, you have the space to um, expound what you think about something. It's beautiful. We as human beings should seek to become prophets in our spheres of influence, relying on the law of God, the wisdom bestowed through following the law, and our God-given imaginations as prophet to work towards a culture that reflects the high king. Well, how can I use that where I am now, AJ? How does this work in the context of the school environment? My sports team, my club, how do I perform these roles? How do I live out the cultural mandate? I'm going to give you three things. One, I think it's the understanding that it's your God-given right, not your God-given burden. If you hear this stuff today and it freaks you out, you need to double check. It's like, how am I viewing God's gifts? I don't want to be in charge of all this. I just want to blend into a wall and never be seen. Is it a burden? Are these things burdens to you? Or is it gifts? If you are not enjoying meditating on the word of God or you continue to make unwise decisions, or your imagination leads to sin, then you have to check back to see if you're setting up God as preeminent in your life, if he is the center. How can you begin to enjoy fully, uh, to enjoy fulfilling the cultural mandate? Second question. As all wisdom begins with, second response, as all wisdom begins with, fear the Lord. Look to him and ask him, how he would use you in your spheres of influence. When's the last time you did that? Lord, how can I be used in this club or on this sports team or on this thing at school or at this job? When's the last time you asked God of that? I have a hard time believing that if you are praying that prayer, that he wouldn't make it clear to you on some personal ways that you can work towards benefiting culture. I have a really hard time believing that if you are earnestly praying that, you won't begin to see ways that you can impact the people around you. And if you're still having issues with that, come talk to me. I have a process we can go through to make sure that you're saying things correctly. It's called reading your Bible. Okay. It's amazing. 66 bucks. Okay. I know that sounded like a joke. But I, it was just a really, there was a really interesting article I read yesterday 
about some guy who was like, I'm just waiting for God's will in my life. I'm, what should I do, Lord? You know, I'm a college junior. I don't know what I should do next in life. And so he made it a point to sit down with his Bible and write down the things that always came up in Scripture that God was asking him to do. Okay, I'm supposed to do this. Okay. I'm supposed to not think this way. I'm supposed to do this with my money. I'm supposed to do this with my time. And he came up with a list of like 70 things within two days. And he looked at that list and went, well, I know God's will for my life, and I'm really stinking at it right now. If you're following that list, it's amazing how many, how much clarity God's going to give you. I promise. If you really want to talk about God's will and talk about those things, let me know. We'll have coffee. Third is look to spheres you already have influence in. If you're the third string player for your sports team, how can you support the other players on your team from your position? If you're a club leader, how can you develop future leaders? What can you be doing in youth group that benefits the culture as a whole? So what do you can be doing here? All of you are involved in this. I know it because I see you most weeks. But what about the evil in the culture? This always comes up. What about evil and culture? How do we engage in culture making without it becoming an idol? Or using man-made inventions for evil? Isn't it safer to just cling to created things? Just make a house out of sticks in the woods and just stay there? Won't the worldliness and wickedness of culture and rebellion rub off on us? And I want to give you five things and then we're done. First... The presence of evil in culture doesn't inherently prevent us from enjoying culture. Any more than the presence of evil in creation prevents us from enjoying creation. Creation is just as fallen as culture man makes. Okay? Second, seeing evil often instructs us on what is good in contrast. In contrast. So the presence of evil within human culture can awaken us to our desire for a renewed and transformed world. I hope it does that. I hope you don't look at the culture and go, man, I want that. So bad. Mm. Unless it's a good thing in culture. Third, God is able to communicate truth about himself through evil things in the world. Compassion. Bravery. These are all things that would not exist if evil did not exist. Fourth, there's a crucial difference between recognizing evil and delighting in evil. I think a lot of us know that. Okay? Where, where do you recognize evil and where do you delight in that? Fifth, the presence of sin and wickedness in stories, movies, television, and music creates the opportunity to grow in biblical obedience by abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. Okay? We're going to see... Does, does the fact that there is an evil character in uh, Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter make those stories evil? No. Because we all look at it and go, he's bad. If you're looking at that going, Voldemort's got a, you know, he's got a good point. We should really just kind of kill all the muggles. I hate noses. Anyone with a nose should die. You know, if you're, th- if you're thinking those things when you look at stories, then your reaction should, your heart should check itself. If you love the villain 
not for the sake of the villain, but because you think he's pretty, I wish I could do that. Right? Then maybe you should check yourself. Okay? So again, stories, movie, film, television, video games are not inherently evil unless you are enjoying what's inherently evil in them. Does that make sense? So. Okay. On a side note, and this is going to offend some of you. That might mean if you take too much pleasure in killing people and shooting up games. How much pleasure are you taking in death? Okay. That's my point. I know that's going to rile feathers, but what you got to check your heart there. Is it? Do I? Do I believe that video games lead to shooting deaths all across the country? No, I don't. But I can tell you this. Every one of those guys that went into schools with guns had been playing shooting games. So where was their heart in relation to those? So how are you they enjoying it? And that's just the obvious one when it comes to lust and sex in movies, when it comes to lying and theft and stealing, when it comes to cheating to get ahead or wiggling your way, when it comes to pride, if you wish you were that arrogant. There's tons of ways that culture can show us the state of our hearts. And the question becomes, how is our heart reacting to that? Does that make sense? Okay. So when you look at the world, the good and the bad, how does your heart respond? Does it long to make culture the center of the culture the center or the most enjoyed? Or does it long for Christ and the many gifts he showers upon us? We will look at how we can both enjoy and create culture well in transformation groups, and that's what we're gonna do at the Thanks for listening to another Yak Podcast. If you want more information on Yak, you can visit us at cccfrisco.org. Hope you join us again next week. Thanks for listening.